0: In a brief order this week, the U.S. Supreme Court restored federal government's access to and control of the border. In doing so, it's effectively holding that, at least for now, the federal government and not the state of Texas has authority over Texas's border with Mexico.
1: California was actually the first state to enact uh what we might think of as a as an anti-immigrant law. It was a California law that criminalized the unlawful uh hiring of people who were not authorized to work. Prior to 2001, a lot of federal immigration law was really bipartisan in nature it could be they could be enacted in times of divided federal government by one party controlling congress but another party controlling the executive that's probably that's a description that is accurate from 1965 through 2001 but after 2001 immigration becomes a, a topic somewhat like abortion, right? That is, once you say the topic, you can tell where people fall <laughs> on, the, on that spectrum by, yeah. by the political party affiliation. Yeah, it's a great question. 2012, I think was a very important year for state and local immigration lawmaking. You had t- a couple of things happening all at the, the same time. So in, in one sense, your question is based on a premise about which there is significant disagreement. That is, what does yeah. it mean to actually abdicate responsibility over uh, over federal immigration? Because you would think that something so important uh, that the Constitution would, would have lots of mentions of it. Yeah, it yeah, yeah, yeah. The Constitution never actually says the word immigration at all. Until the Civil War and until the 14th Amendment was added to the United States Constitution, federal citizenship, United States citizenship, was not nearly as important as many historians will tell you than state citizenship.
0: Did you know that until after the Civil War, that is, about the initial 100 years of our nation's history, the U.S. government, our federal government, did very little to regulate immigration. As some historians tell us, this may be because federal regulation of immigration was seen as just too darn close to federal regulation of slavery. And that's why matters of immigration were more or less handled by our states. Hey there, newspeelers. Today is January 24, 2024, and this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink. Or both? And let's get into it. The state of Texas claims that the federal government has essentially abdicated its responsibility of controlling the US border. As my guest, Professor Deep gul explains, this is not at all a new claim. Texas and Arizona have made these claims in the past, but as the surge of migrants at the US border has continued Unabated, Texas state troopers and National Guardsmen have laid concertina razor wire along parts of the Mexico-Texas border with the stated intention of deterring dangerous border crossings. The White House, however, describes the razor wires as a political stunt. According to the Wall Street Journal, the Texas Immigration and Border Control Project, which is called Operation Lone Star, has so far cost more than $11 billion with little to show for it on january 12th u.s federal agents were prevented by texas national guardsmen from reaching the rio grande to rescue migrants who were in danger of drowning and the backdrop to this confrontation was that a migrant woman and two children had drowned hours earlier close to the same location As reported by the New York Times, when Texas sued the federal government back in October, it alleged that the U.S. border patrol agents had cut razor wires at least 20 times to admit aliens illegally entering Texas. This lawsuit went up on appeal to the Supreme Court and I won't bore you with its legal and procedural details here. Suffice it to say, the Supreme Court sided with the federal government. Allowing U.S. border agents to cut or remove parts of the concertina wire along the border? In response to the Supreme Court's order, Texas Governor Greg Abbott said this on X, quote, I will continue to defend Texas's constitutional authority to secure the border. Unquote. So here's my question. Does the Constitution in fact give Governor Abbott, or any governor for that matter, the authority? to control our country's international borders. To better understand the history of the tension between U.S. states and our federal government when it comes to immigration, I spoke with Professor Grosakram a few months ago when, in response to Governor Abbott's calls for help, governors of Virginia, West Virginia, and South Carolina sent their National Guard troops to Texas, to its border with Mexico. Other GOP-led states such as Mississippi, Iowa, Tennessee, Nebraska, and Florida, also offered to help Governor Abbott with his border issue. At the time of our conversation, Professor Golosacrum was a professor of law at the Santa Clara University School of Law. As is evident from the Republican primaries now, immigration at our border with Mexico continues to be a highly polarizing issue. So today we will revisit my conversation with Professor Glossacre, who is now at Colorado Law, University of Colorado Boulder, where his research focuses on the constitutional rights of non-citizens and federalism, concerns in immigration law. He is the co-author of the leading immigration law casebook used in law schools, which is titled Immigration and Citizenship, Process and Policy. And he's also the co-author of The Immigration Federalism, a book that provides an in-depth empirical and theoretical analysis of the resurgence of state and local immigration lawmaking, which is the subject of our conversation in this episode. And here's something super cool about Professor Kulasakram. In addition to everything they already mentioned about him here, he's a co-founder of the World Children's Initiative, Inc., a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving health and educational infrastructure for children in developing areas around the world. Yes, this is neither news nor history. It's just really awesome what Professor Glusacrim is doing, and that's why I'm sharing it here with you. And if you're interested, you can click the link in this episode's caption to learn more about his organization, the World Children's Initiative. To learn more about Professor Glossakram, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Glossakram and I peel the history behind this news. I'm excited to share with you the news that this week we're launching Unraveling the Middle East. It's a whole new weekly podcast, a series on the Middle East, its in-depth analysis, history, myths, and mysteries. For example, we all know about Noah's Ark and the Genesis Flood, right? Well, did you know that the story of a great flood and even accounts of the Garden of Eden were told in Sumerian poems found in Mesopotamia way back in 2100 BC? What does this mean? Does this mean that the Bible borrowed stories from its past, in this case, from the Epic of Gilgamesh? Here's another one. We all know about the U.S. hostages in Iran and how the U.S.-Iran relations quickly deteriorated after Iran's 1979 revolution. But according to one of my guest scholars, by proclaiming the Carter Doctrine in 1980, President Jimmy Carter effectively pledged to defend the Islamic Republic of Iran in case of Iran's invasion by the Soviet Union. I know, there's so much irony in this. But instead of me explaining the Carter Doctrine or deciphering the epic of Gilgamesh, follow Unraveling the Middle East, where scholars dig deep into this fascinating region's long history. I've dropped a link to Unraveling the Middle East in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's start our conversation with Professor Glosecker. Professor Gulasekren, it's a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. To understand the role that our 50 states could potentially have in regulating immigration, I think we got to start with some basic questions, the answers for which may actually turn out to be quite complex. So let's get into it. What is federalism?
1: So you... Thank you for having me, first of all. Uh, You started with a question that is huge, broad, has lots of different perspectives. But I think the simplest answer that one can give is federalism is the idea that power is allocated and authority is divided between different levels of government. Um, So in the United States, our version of federalism, often called our federalism in legal literature, reflects the idea that authority, governmental authority in the United States is divided between the federal government, the national government, constituted of Congress, the Supreme Court, the executive branch, and then uh, the states, right, the 50 the fifty states underneath it. In a famous Supreme Court opinion, Justice Anthony Kennedy once said that the, fi- the framers of the Constitution, quote, split the atom of sovereignty, unquote, between the federal government and the states. And so that's the idea of federalism. It's easy to state in those abstract terms, much more difficult and complicated to apply to contemporary. And if politics.
0: I may stop you here. What you just shared with me is easy to comprehend. Why is this a complex issue then?
1: Right, because I think one of the reasons it's so complex is that abstract or general formulation doesn't exactly tell you what the meets and boundaries are of federal power versus state power. What do you do when states and the federal government are are engaging in concurrent regulation in a particular area? Are there areas that are exclusively for state control, exclusively for federal control? The Constitution doesn't really provide very clear answers to all of these questions. Um, And especially as our uh, society, our nation, our country, Country has expanded geographically. We've uh, we've we've um, developed technologically. Uh, all of those things. These questions, these regulatory questions, have have had significant. Um, there's been significant controversy and complication as to how to apply those general principles.
0: So, if the Constitution doesn't um, clarify this, then this area is fraught for litigation, kind of like constitutional law issues left and right.
1: That's right. And this is why many types uh, in many regulatory areas, you get questions over the extent of state versus federal power. This is not unique to, I know we're going to be talking today about immigration, but this is certainly not unique to the immigration sphere. Think about any form, any area of regulation, li- products liability in torts, criminal law. Uh, environmental regulation. In all of these areas, you are going to get disputes over where federal authority uh, might start and end and where state authority might start and end.
0: So you mentioned immigration. So let's get into immigration. In the Constitution,
1: is there any mention of immigration? It's surprising, I think, uh, because immigration is so far at the top of our current national agenda yeah, and, so yeah. much, and occupies so much space in how we, in our political discourse, you would think that something so important would have, uh, that the constitution would, would have lots of mentions of it. Yeah, it yeah. 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 The constitution never actually says the word immigration at all, um, the closest or a nation of immigrants. This is not in our Constitution. That's interesting, right? The closest the Constitution comes to mentioning immigration is the word migration, and that is in the Migration and Importation Clause of Article One, Section Nine. That clause says the migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by Congress until the year one thousand eight hundred eight. That clause, though, even though it it generally talks about migration of persons, is clearly a a clause, is one of the clauses in the Constitution, including the three-fifths clause, that is really intended to be talking about slavery without mentioning the word slavery.
0: Oh, that's why I said the year 1808.
1: That's right. It prohibits congressional regulation of, of slavery until the year 1808. Uh, and in fact, Congress did begin regulating the uh, movement of of slaves into the United States from foreign countries in 1808. Uh, but other than that, the only other mention of uh, of something that is related to immigration would be the naturalization clause. It, it, oh,
0: the- how to become a citizen?
1: Right. It it says that Congress has the power to establish a uniform rule of naturalization. So certainly Congress has the power to make citizens, that is to tell us who amongst the non-citizen population and under what conditions those non-citizens can become citizens. But that doesn't necessarily tell you that Congress has the power to control movement into the nation or exclusion from the nation.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a very vague with respect to those uh, two areas you mentioned. Um, this is on a, ten- a bit of a tangent, but I just wanted to make sure that I understand this. The clause that you mentioned about slavery that uh, prohibited Congress from making any laws about it until the year 1808, it, it was sort of set up to to give uh, Southerners sort of a compromise that here, sign on to our constitution this is a compromise. We don't do anything. We won't do anything about slavery till 1808, right? That's sort of the backdrop to that.
1: That's right. You know, and, okay. and certainly this is not my area of e- expertise, but yeah, that yeah. Is- that is the commonly understood um, explanation for why that clause and other clauses, like the three-fifths clause, are in the Constitution. These were compromises necessary to get uh, all of the states, including the 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 slavery uh, the, the states in which slavery was quite important uh, to their to their continued um, economic survival. And and uh, there was significant resistance to the Constitution without those forms of compromises in them. That those clauses were. Added to get those states on board.
0: I see. Thanks for explaining that. I was just curious. Let's let's get back to our regular programming here now. Uh, what is immigration federalism? I've heard this before.
1: Yeah. So immigration federalism is the uh, term generally used within legal academic circles, but fundamentally, it's just trying to describe the area of law and constitutional adjudication. Which is trying to figure out what exactly is the room for states and localities to enact immigrant or immigration related policies. So, for example, can Arizona create, uh, as it did in 2010, an omnibus enforcement? law uh, against unlawfully present non-citizens? Can California cities, on the other hand, can they have non-cooperation or sanctuary laws? So that that all of those laws, and whether they're legal or not legal, those fall underneath the broad umbrella of immigration federalism.
0: Is the term immigration federalism, and it's sort of related research is this only in the academic arena or is this real litigation going on that you know goes up the supreme court
1: yeah this is very much uh both an an area of academic study but certainly on the ground this is something especially over the last two or three decades has been an active area of both policy making and litigation and so uh, on the one hand you can think of um, just thinking about the last couple decades and even the last several years There have been laws that, for example, provide driver's licenses to any resident of a state regardless of their immigration status, provide access to um, higher education uh, or education financing regardless of immigration status. And then you have, uh, on the other hand, laws that uh, that engage states and localities in immigration enforcement uh, that might, um, for example, prohibit non-citizens or landlords from renting to non-citizens attempt to keep uh, unlawfully present non-citizens out of uh, public schooling. All of those have are examples of laws that have been enacted in the last 10 to 15 years and have uh, been under significant litigation in federal courts. Oh,
0: wow, that's fascinating. So that's sort of an indirect way of regulating immigration without really having laws specifically on it. So let's, let's get into this history. We'll be right back after a short break to talk about states- participation in immigration and legislation and enforcement since our founding. We'll be right back. <music> do immigrants commit more crime than native-born Americans? Do you think they do? If you think that, you're not alone. Since the 19th century, many Americans have claimed that immigrants increase crime rates in America. And this issue has been studied since the early years of the 20th century, including specifically for the state of Texas. In Season 3, Episode 18, my guest, Professor Jennifer Chacon, digs deep into the history of immigration and crime. As she explains it, the immigrants of our past, who native-born Americans claim to be criminals, were Irish, Italian, Greek, Russian, Polish, Jewish, Chinese, and other ethnicities and nationalities that today, for many generations, are themselves native-born Americans. I've provided a link to this fascinating conversation in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Professor Glossacrum. (music) Professor Glossacrum, what roles did our states play in legislating and enforcing immigration. And perhaps I'm u- using the wrong words here, legislating, quote, unquote, and enforcing. I just want to know where they evolved since the founding of our nation.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that's quite remarkable about when you look back at the history of state and localities and their um, relationship to immigration is that when you look at the first 100 years of the republic. hmm. The federal government actually did very little regulation of immigration, and certainly not in the ways that we understand it today, Um, which meant that what we mostly might think of as immigration regulation was done at the state and local level. Now, this was not uniform throughout the existing states at that time. But if you do a survey, and and it is certainly not my work, but other notable scholars Uh, including Gerald Newman, who's at Harvard Law School right now, has written about this. Uh, But if you look back at that first century of the republic's existence, what you'll see is a lot of state and local laws that controlled, for example, uh, the regulation of convicts coming into a locality, the regulation of People who might be too poor, or were likely to become, as as the uh, legal term is used, likely to become a public charge. That is, they were likely to yeah. uh, use public benefits. There was there were laws that regulated uh, the the uh, the movement of people because they were going to spread contagious diseases or required quarantine of people. Sounds like Title Forty Two. Yeah, it, it, yeah those those are the the pro you know the the first laws that eventually became the authority that that we now see in things like title 42 um and then of course during that first century uh, right before the civil war uh, regional regulations that relating to slavery and the movement of free blacks uh, across the united states and of, of course fugitive slaves that across borders um, in many ways, this these were the regulations that one might argue uh, w- th- constituted the immigration laws of the first century of the republic's existence. It's only after the Civil War into the 1870s and 1880s that the federal government starts to regulate immigration in the ways that we under- would understand it today.
0: So let's go back here. I have a couple of, I guess, burning questions.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: First, you said that. The federal government did very little in the way of what today we would think of as regulating immigration. Um, is this because re- immigration wasn't a big deal in the first hundred years of our republic before the Civil War?
1: So there's certainly lots of different inputs and explanations. One was certain. One was that there was a general policy of wanting more people to populate the United States, at least from certain areas, specifically Northern and Western Europe, or places that were familiar to the the people already in the United States to help with the expansion uh, of the United States. Uh, The federal government, though, at that time, um, the other explanation that is often given by historians is that federal regulation of immigration was seen to be too close to allowing general federal regulation of the slave trade in general. And therefore, while oh. slavery existed, uh, some uh, many historians have argued it was not politically feasible for the federal government to enter into immigration regulation. This is why, some would argue that the real that the real first federal immigration laws, the first comprehensive federal regulation of admission um, into the United States occurs in 1875 after the Civil War, after the Reconstruction amendments, when slavery is now no longer on the table.
0: Even though uh, a potential federal regulation before the Civil War may not have been regarding slavery, it was just too close to that topic for southern states to be comfortable with it
1: i think that is that is certainly one of the <laughs> uh, more persuasive um, explanations proffered in the academic literature
0: wow that's fascinating i would have never thought that i th- i don't think it's something that intuitively comes across when you read history or when you look back at u.s immigration history my second quote-unquote burning question that i have for you after you explain the first hundred years of our immigration history is this You know, different state level laws or regulations, local ordinances or what have you relating to immigration, right? Let's take that back to my personal experience as a lawyer, patent law. You can't have 50 patent laws in our 50 states. Like you have a patent in Arizona, but not in New Jersey. How does that even make sense, right? So how did this make sense? You can't have, well, back then there weren't 50 states up to 1870, whatever. They eventually grew to 20 some states. Um, how could you have different immigration regulation for New York versus Virginia? So I guess, I don't know, French Huguenots could come to North Carolina, South Carolina, but not to New York. And then how did that work?
1: Yeah, it's it's certainly um, not a, a way of thinking about immigration uh, and a state of affairs that is easy to imagine today.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: It's very foreign to the way we understand immigration, and as you said, sort of the practical necessity, maybe, of a uniform set of rules with regards to migra- to both entry and then the terms and condition of staying and then exit. That said, that is fundamentally what uh, the what it looked like prior yeah. to eighteen seventy. Um, there were, for example, there were there was Supreme Court case uh, that upheld a New York law. That required certain information from passengers landing in New York. This is an 1837 case. And the Supreme Court said, it's okay for the state of New York to demand certain information from passengers landing at New York Harbor. Uh, Much as? Uh, so they, at that point, they were looking for uh, information as to whether the passengers would be dangerous. Um, but the broader law that was at issue in this case, it's called New York versus Milne. It's an 1837 Supreme Court case. Uh, the broader law was a state law that attempted to regulate whether passengers disembarking in New York were going to be, for example, paupers, that is too poor to land, certain diseases, etc. And these were not uniform uh, throughout all of the landing ports in the United States. So it's entirely uh, plausible that somebody could land at one port and be subject to certain regulations and land at another port and be subject to maybe similar, but not necessarily the same regulations, right? So this was, um, so you're right. This was not a situation where one could possibly say that there was a uniform set of regulations that a a non-citizen or a person coming from a foreign land would face when they came to the United States. And obviously, this is saying nothing about the uh, the the land borders of the United States at that time, um, to the extent they existed, uh, where people could cross into territory that would later become the United States, but at that time may not have been the United
0: States. Oh, like private lands that they could uh, traverse over to get into federal. Uh, sort of territory or states, America, right? Is that what That's you're referring right. to?
1: Into into the territory that would become the United States, right? And so, um, I, I, yes, you're you're right. There is there was no real uniformity um, prior to the federal the emergence of a robust federal system of regulation in the in the 1870s, 1880s into the 1890s. Um, even so even during that time of even during that time of transition, a, a lot of the the federal bureaucracy was dependent on the state systems the state controls over ports, uh, over disembarkation points and then it was only by the late 19th century that the federal bureaucracy over immigration uh, became more robust in the ways that we'd be that would be more familiar to us today
0: um, I just I want to ask a technical question that may be telling uh, about some of the details uh, out of what you were just describing. So, how did an immigrant become a citizen? Let's say you know you land in South Carolina, it's eighteen, whatever, forty-five. Was there a different set of criteria for becoming a U.S. citizen than, let's say, if you landed in New Hampshire? Or was there a federal sort of, was there a CFR for this or something to that effect, you know?
1: So the one thing that Congress did uh, enact from the very beginning of the Republic were using its naturalization power. That is the power given to Congress. Which was in the
0: constitution.
1: That is in the constitution. Congress did use the naturalization power and had always had ever since the beginning of the Republic. Laws that regulated the conditions under which uh, somebody who was foreign born could become a citizen of the United States. Now, not surprisingly, uh, at the beginning of the Republic, through the through the Civil War, and even afterwards into the 1950s, these were racially. Uh, restrictive laws. And at the beginning of the Republic, only white people could naturalize. After the Civil War, white people and the descendants of people uh, people of African descent could naturalize. And then in a famous set of cases from the late 1800s through the 19 uh, early 1900s into the 1950s, uh, naturalization was still racially restricted. That is not everyone could become a citizen. Most famously, oh, wow. uh, Asian uh, immigrants could not become citizens. Indian immigrants from the country of India could not become citizens. So it's a famous set of Supreme Court cases, which, um, which verified both of those things. Um, and this was contested. Uh, this was contested Territory until the 1950s, after which federal immigration law uh, removed the racial restrictions on naturalization. But to go back to your question, yes, there were federal laws that uh, existing from the time of the creation of the republic, which uh, which detailed when people could naturalize. But the important thing, I think, to also add to your my answer here is that until the Civil War and until the 14th Amendment was added to the United States Constitution. Federal citizenship, citizen, United States citizenship was not nearly as important as many historians will tell you than state citizenship. So to oh. to to become a citizen of a state may have meant more, may have had more consequences than to be a citizen of the United States.
0: Well, I got to ask this. <laughs> Give me some examples. Like how? I mean, I, 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 consequence, like in your practical everyday life. It was more important for me to be from, let's say, New York than to be of the United States. This is before the Civil War.
1: Right. I mean, obviously, we're speaking in in broad generalizations. Yeah. But uh, one way of understanding what happens after the Civil War and the Reconstruction uh, Amendments, especially the 14th Amendment, is that it fundamentally restructures the importance of membership in the federal government. Uh, that one could reasonably say that state laws and state regulation were the prime um regulatory systems the 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 prime legal systems that governed uh, everyday life for most people uh, at that time and certainly this is one of the reasons why state laws regarding slavery up until the civil war could exist right because the yeah. federal government had no power to tell the state to to do something differently, right? And so, um, and this was a time before the Bill of Rights in the fe- in the federal constitution applied to the states. And so uh, states often had rules that were in variance with each other and with uh, the federal government with regards to um, rights that we now take as fundamental rights protected by the Bill of Rights. This is a much-
0: I'm sorry, our Bill of Rights did not apply to states before the Civil War?
1: That is correct. Uh, wow. So the until the 14th Amendment, and even after that, because it, it was a, a slower process of courts actually deciding which parts of the Bill of Rights applied against the states, the Bill of Rights was seen in the Constitution as only a prohibition against federal government action. In fact, you can see this in some of the wording, right? So when you look at the First Amendment, it says Congress shall not. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Um, and so and so states might have had similar types of restrictions in their own state constitutions. but for example, if you were in a particular state and the state did something and you wanted to claim that the state was violating your freedom of uh, of expression or your freedom of religion, you could not prior to the Civil War make a federal constitutional claim against wow the you would have to raise a claim underneath uh, a state constitutional provision or a state law provision
0: so, Going back to our discussion of immigration, we did rest of the Bill of Rights, but that was fascinating. Um, after 1875, uh, the federal government takes on a more robust uh, stance in regulating immigration. And the the minute we have left of this segment, uh, what I want to know is something that one of your colleagues, um, my professor, Jennifer Chacon, um, shared with me, Um, the Dillingham Commission that came in the 1910s and 1920s, 1920s was famous, well, really infamous for immigration scares. Um, Did states play a dominant role in that? Or was that mainly sort of a federal regulation matter?
1: I'm sorry. I apologize, and I'm not sure I understand the the quite when when you when you're talking about that. Are you referring to the 1875? uh, No, I'm
0: going forward. No, thank you for clarifying that. I'm going forward to the 1920s and prior to that, 1910s, where immigration became a huge political, heated national issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I want to know is that. Were states at that time enforcing their own local laws and regulations, or was by then the federal government now in control? Of immigration,
1: yeah, I think it's it's fair to say that by the 1920s, the federal government had become the prime, if not exclusive, regulator of of immigration, and that's a story that really starts as Professor Chacon uh, had uh, had mentioned on your podcast in 1875, with the first federal enactment, a, a law that that prohibited the immigration of uh, of of people who were likely to become public of. of uh, sex workers uh, deemed prostitutes at that time um and and uh another category of uh of, of immigrants that's now escaping me right now is the first law and following criminals yes that's right convicts yeah. and that- um, followed in short order uh, by the Chinese Exclusion Acts. And so by the time you get to the 1900s, um, early 1900s, it's, the court seems to have settled on the idea that at least with regards to admission, the terms and conditions of staying, and then exclusion, that is deportation, right, of kicking... Mm-hmm out that the federal government is the prime, if not sole regulator of that area. But by the time of the 1920s and the Dillingham Commission, there is a concern with the type of people that are being led in uh, under current federal immigration laws in the late 1800s into the early 1900s. It is uh, at that point, the United States experienced the highest number of foreign born uh, as a percentage of the United States population that the United States has ever faced, including up to today right? That oh wow as a percentage of the population um and uh, at, during that time the industrial revolution the 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 place where people are coming from is changing it's no longer predominantly northern and western europe it's starting to become southern and eastern European, uh, and the uh, the people who had already been in the United States, the people in power in the United States, um, along with the eugenics movement, concerned about this new stock of immigrants coming. Uh, and this commission is constituted to, to study immigration law and comes to the conclusion that uh, the best way to handle this is to think about what the percentages of of people were in the United States near the turn of the century and use that as the basis for future migration flows, thereby privileging Northern and Western European immigration uh, while um, diminishing uh, immigration from all other areas. And at this time, there are already laws that prohibit immigration from all over Asia. uh, And so you get a very uh constructed racially constructed group of Americans coming in that time period.
0: And these laws were mostly against um Catholics, Orthodox Christians, and, and let's say Jews and, and Asians, uh, particularly Chinese. Um yeah.
1: yeah. At interesting. several levels, Chinese exclusion. Um and then and then you had uh the 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 way the quotas worked it essentially privileged uh, all all uh, immigration from Northern and Western Europe and diminished uh, immigration from places like Italy or Eastern Europe.
0: I see. We'll be back after a short break to talk about the rest of this story that takes us into the 21st century.
2: We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you.
0: Professor Glossakram, how did the roles of state and local governments become such a hot topic in the opening years of the 21st century? Like I remember 20 years ago, I don't know, 17, 18 years ago, state involvement became really in the news even, not even in sort of academic circles.
1: Yeah. So, you know, important to note that there has always been some level of state and local involvement. Um, Much of this, much of the immigration that we understand today is a product of post-1965 changes to immigration laws. It's underneath those laws that people like you and me Uh, got to the United States, probably.
0: Yeah, amen.
1: So, um, you know, those laws uh, opened up immigration to the the entirety of the world uh, to come to the United States, but they also started enacting... Restrictions on the numbers of people that could come from uh, all the places, uh, all the countries around the world. Now, as you can imagine, this starts to this opens up immigration for places that previously could not get in the United States. But on the other hand, the numerical restrictions really operate to restrict uh, what had been routine migration flows from countries from which there had been geographic and historic relationships. For example, Mexico, which had often had people coming to the United States cyclically. Uh, Um, And so it's, post-1965 into the early 1970s, that the idea of the unlawfully present immigrant in the ways that we understand it today really starts to take root. Um, oh, wow. In the 1970s, California was actually the first state to enact uh, what we might think of as, a, as an anti-immigrant law. It was a California law that criminalized the unlawful uh, hiring of people who were not authorized to work. Um it you know it 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 gains significant notoriety. It goes to the Supreme Court. It was upheld at that time, but later the federal government starts to regulate in that area, and so laws like California become what's known as preempted. That is, the federal government uh, regulates in that area, and state laws are no longer um, uh, can no longer be enforced. Also, during that era,
0: even if the state law is indirectly affecting that area.
1: That's right. so if if there this is known as preemption doctrine. It's a mm-hmm. function of um uh, article of the the original Constitution, which tells you that the Constitution of the United States and federal laws are supreme over uh, other forms of lawmaking, including state lawmaking. And this has been understood by the courts to mean that when the federal government uh, enacts laws, it can preempt. State laws. That is, it can exclude state laws, even state laws that happen to be um, similar to that federal law, even state laws that are serving the same purpose of that federal law. And this is essentially what happens with California's initial attempts in the 1970s to regulate unauthorized employment. Um, At that same time, Texas uh, attempts to to exclude uh, unlawfully present children from attending public schools. This becomes the famous Supreme Court case of 1982, Plyler versus Doe, still a very important part of our constitutional framework in which the court says it is unconstitutional for states to exclude unlawfully present children from attending public schools in the United States. I don't want to suggest that that state and local involvement is just a factor of the last few years. And and then again, in 1994, California enacts its Proposition 187, which at that time gained gained significant notoriety. Uh, California attempt to exclude uh, unlawfully present non-citizens from access to any social services and other types of state benefits struck down by a federal court and later superseded by federal enactments in 1996. But I think one can fairly characterize all of those as in a sense isolated or um, low level attempts to, obviously California is a huge state, Texas is a big state, um, but they they didn't, I think capture other than Prop 187, capture the national attention in the way the state and local immigration laws of the last 10 to 15 years have post 911 post 2001 state and local immigration laws as you rightfully say start to gain significant national media attention they start to occupy a significant part of federal dockets in terms of uh, litigation um and we still talk about them today right what is the role and what's the appropriate um li- leeway for uh, for state and local regulation and that's even being tested as we speak by states like Texas and Florida, which are enacting these sorts of laws. So, your question was, "What accounts for this this rise?" And I think there are several different responses. Uh, a co-author of mine and I, Karthik Ramakrishnan, who's a political scientist at University of California Riverside, were interested in this question. And one of the things that we saw was that prior to two thousand and one, a lot of federal immigration law was really bipartisan in nature it could be they could be enacted in times of divided federal government by one party controlling congress but another party controlling the executive that's probably that's a description that is accurate from 1965 through 2001 but after 2001 immigration becomes a, a Topic somewhat like abortion, right? That is, once you say the topic, you can tell where people fall <laughs> on the, on that spectrum by yeah. by the political party affiliation. Yeah. So you get significant polarization, which leads to federal stasis, no federal immigration law to speak of, really since nineteen ninety six. Right, it's a very long time. We're now oh, wow. going thirty years from that moment, and this leaves the opportunity for states and localities to really become robust in their immigration regulation. And it's also at states and localities where you're more likely to find uh, pockets that are more closely controlled by political partisans, right, where you can get enactments uh, based, you know, by pushing it through, uh, you know, a a red state where the legislature and the executive are both controlled by the same party or a blue state. Uh, And so you can get these sorts of enactments. That is one explanation for why you start to see a significant rise in them after uh, 2001. And certainly with regards to, uh, with the federal policies that that are enacted during that time, states becoming much more robust in their attempt to um, push back against that federal policy by the use of state and local immigration policies.
0: In this discussion of 21st century uh, state uh, uh, involvement states involvements in immigration, I've seen the year 2012 mentioned several times, including your own uh, writings what happened in 2012? Was there a shift?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. 2012, I think, was a very important year for state and local immigration lawmaking. You had a couple of things happening all at the, the same time. One is that's the year that the Supreme Court decides a case called Arizona versus United States. And in this case, the Supreme Court strikes down most, but not all of Arizona's SB 1070. SB 1070 in Arizona was a state level immigration law, an omnibus immigration enforcement law by the state of Arizona uh, that attempted to regulate unlawful migration into the state by criminalizing several aspects of, of immigration in the state and then empowering state and local authorities to do things like check people's papers or arrest people on suspicion of being unlawfully present in the United States. So in the summer of 2012, the Supreme Court strikes down many of those uh, provisions in SB 1070. It's also the same summer that President Obama, uh, at you know nearing the end of his first term, uh, institutes what's now known as the DACA program, right? The Deferred oh, Action for Childhood yeah. program. Um, providing some relief from removal for for hundreds of thousands of unlawfully present young people in the United States and providing them the opportunity to both go to school and to seek employment in the United States during the time that DACA is active. So I think those two are just significant things that happened at that time. Um, And at the time that Arizona had enacted its laws, It wasn't just Arizona. There was copycat litigation, sorry, legislation in lots of different states, including Georgia, Alabama, uh, Indiana, Utah. A lot of states had that type of of legislation. So um, it wasn't just one state. And so that's why 2012 happens to become a a very important marker. It's also a time when you start to see progressive or integration-minded localities and states start to mimic the same strategies as restrictionists or anti-immigration states. That is, maybe they start to think maybe it's a good idea to, to look at the possibilities for state and local policies that can be, in in, the, in their view, more immigrant friendly. So that's when you start to see a rise in, for example, driver's license laws that allow access to driver's licenses or IDs to people regardless of immigration status, access to higher education um, or education financing, professional licensing uh, policies in states that allow people, regardless of immigration status, to become licensed as doctors or as lawyers, right? And so uh, you start to see all the all of these mo- movements happening and really accelerating in the 2012. Uh,
0: so that's why you call them integrationist. These states are the reverse of states that were restrictive. They're working. They're passing legislation towards integration, right? sort of the other side of the pendulum
1: that's right so you you start to see both of these movements trying to use state and local uh, jurisdictions and state and local authority to enact their preferred vision of immigration integrationists, or it's just a term. You, other people might use other terms, but it, at least in 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 my book and and uh, and my co-authors and other people, you might think of integrationists as uh, a set of policies intended to uh, be ameliorative or pro-immigrant um, to not worry about immigration status or unlawful status and simply treat people as residents of a community or of a state. Um, And then on the other side, restrictionist or uh, anti-immigrant, if you'd like policies that attempt to um, be more enforcement heavy to deter the presence of at least unlawfully present non-citizens, and in some cases, all non-citizens from being in a locality.
0: And of course, all of this falls into the ambit of politics where each state is. Um, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Golasakram as we get into the perspective.
2: The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast.
0: Professor Glosecrum, in the last segment, we talked about how in the 1870s and thereafter, there were state laws restricting um, uh, access to education or uh, employment for unauthorized uh, persons in the United States, illegal immigrants, um, social services, and 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 sort of you know, we went all the way up to uh, SB ten seventy in Arizona. Um, I don't want to talk about any one of those specifically. What I'm wondering is this: What if the federal government sort of <laughs> abdicates its responsibility to control our borders? And I'm not saying this in the political context. Literally, it just it just drops the ball, and you know it's not supervising or implementing even immigration laws that we have now. Let's say Arizona or whatever state is stuck with taking care of immigrants, or pick any states, right? So I don't know what is the recourse for these states then. Mm-hmm. I, I told it's, you it's not a political question, but it turned out to be a political question, right?
1: Yeah, Adele, I may have heard you incorrectly, but I I, I may have heard you as saying 1870s when you meant 1970s, right? Maybe
0: in 1970s, 1970s, yes. Thank you for correcting me. Yes, 1970s. Yeah.
1: So I think that, first of all, I think it's important to note that this claim that the federal government has abdicated is re- its responsibility is, in fact, the claim that the state of Arizona and its governor made in 2010 when it's lost and SB 1070 is a very famous picture of then governor Jan Brewer uh, confronting uh, then President Obama on the tarmac at the at an airport in uh, in Arizona, and she you know you see her wagging her finger at, at Obama, and it's famously captured um, in in media reports as Governor Jan Brewer really telling Obama uh, that you know that he needs to do his job, the federal government needs to do his job, and if and if he doesn't do his job, then Arizona is going to do the job that the federal government can't. In fact, if you look, there's a similar picture to Governor Greg Abbott um, meeting President Biden more recently and handing a letter, and that letter purports to do the exact same thing that Governor Jan Brewer was doing, uh, you know, a decade prior. That is telling President Biden that he needs to get moving on immigration, that the federal government has abdicated its responsibility, and this is why the state has stepped in. Now, so that that type of claim as a as a matter of political theater or uh-huh. a way of of justifying state action, that is an age-old claim that is that has been made for decades and certainly in the last uh, couple decades. It's one that that states like Arizona have, and Texas have used and it just- could
0: be applied to other areas of law, for example, environment, many other things, right?
1: That's right. It can be applied anywhere. Um you know, it, it has perhaps some um special symbolic and and uh, and other type of resonance for us because it's done by let's say in in these two cases we're talking about border governors of border states in Arizona and and Texas now it's worth noting that you don't see the governor of California or the governor of New Mexico um, doing (laughs) the same thing right because Um, they're
0: Democrats yeah
1: yeah which is to say that that that's that this idea that the federal government has abdicated its responsibility is not a claim that i think has there's no there's no way of i think objectively measuring and saying yes or no to that question right um yeah the federal government of course has a significant structure at the border right that is the entire the entirety of the border infrastructure is based on federal uh, ports of entry regulation, federal border agents, a significant enforcement force uh, within the federal government. I believe uh, federal immigration authorities are second only to the Federal Bureau of Investigation in number of of uh, of uh, federal um, employed federal. Oh uh, wow,
0: ICE is that big FBI. FBI. after FBI? Wow. I think okay.
1: yeah. I have to go back and look. It might be all of federal immigration authorities, not just ICE, right? I ICE see. Border patrol. Uh, et cetera, right? So it's a significant federal enforcement authority. Um, so in, in one sense, your question is based on a premise about which there is significant disagreement. That is, what does yeah. it mean to actually abdicate responsibility over uh, over federal immigration? Because if we take the robust federal laws that regulate admissions and deportation, federal laws that regulate asylum, federal laws that create the entire enforcement infrastructure at the border. One could reasonably say, I think, that the federal government has not abdicated um, its responsibility. But what we're arguing about is that it should be more, right? This is not about abdication. It's that that there should be more regulation, more enforcement, more border walls, et cetera. Maybe, right, except Congress has not done so. Congress has not done much of anything with regards to immigration law, but it certainly hasn't uh, increased the border enforcement infrastructure with with regards to significantly more funding, or at least the funding that would be required to do the types of things that would make Arizona and Texas uh, political jurisdictions happy um, and perhaps withdraw their claims. And maybe partly because... It's a very convenient political claim to make, right? It's a very popular claim to make in those states. That goes into
0: the heart of nationalism.
1: That's right the federal government has, has abdicated its responsibility we have to step up we have to be robust in enforcing these laws and so um I know it's a little bit of a dodge from the question you asked but I think that that is one way of thinking about this that it that whether the federal government has abdicated or not is a matter of perspective and political convenience
0: so let's go back to my question and answer it legally let's just put politics aside for a second mm-hmm. um If it was the case, let's use a hypothetical, as we both know from law school days, hypo. Let's do a hypo here. Let's say that the federal government did abdicate uh, its responsibility regarding immigration, which also could apply to other areas of law. Mm -hmm. The state couldn't come and say, because you didn't do XYZ per this law, that's a federal law, we're going to have our own legislation now and enforce that. That's not the recourse. The recourse is to sue the government the federal government is the, am i am i correct on that you're shaking your head <laughs> it's
1: a it's a it's a great question i'm not sure we have a great answer to seriously that. we don't i think that you know i think that in the in the pre civil war pre 1870s time if you look at the, the the state of regulation at that time one might say drawing from that states always had a power to regulate who comes into the state and who gets through their borders, their ports of entry. Um, And perhaps that would justify, you know, in a hypothetical world where there was no federal immigration regulation at all, a return to that time. Maybe, right? On the other hand, one might say that what we've learned at that time, what our constitutional structure has uh, divulged is that the regulation of movement into the country whether the federal government has regulated it or not, is still inherently a federal responsibility. So at that moment, it's not for states to regulate, but rather to use their power in Congress to lobby the federal government to do so, to tell their representatives to go to Congress to enact this sort of federal law. But still, it would not be proper for states to to enact their own immigration regulation. I think Just
0: like they would lobby for other laws, right?
1: That's right. That's okay. just like any other laws. And this one in particular would be of such importance that if enough states wanted it to happen, it would clearly happen, right? Now, as everything I've just said, I'm not there. Please don't take it to mean that this is the only perspective on this issue, right? This is yeah. one person's perspective uh, on this issue. It is highly contested territory. If you read the also
0: Supreme... contested also in academia,
1: that's right. If you read the Supreme Court opinions in Arizona versus United States, the 2012 case which, which struck down much of Arizona's attempts to regulate immigration on its own. I think one of the opinions written by Justice Anthony Scalia, it really one could read it as a real um, strong and robust, powerful case for state level immigration law. I think one could read it as saying states have this power and states are allowed to do what they want with regards to the regulation of the movement of non-citizens, regardless what the federal government is doing. Now, I think that's a minority position. But my point to you is that there are people within legal circles that might make that argument. I think it's an impossible argument to make in our current Moment where there is not just a little federal regulation, but robust and comprehensive federal immigration regulation and regulation of the border. In your hypothetical world where all of that goes away, I think we're once again plunged. We're once again once again plunged <laughs> into uncertainty about what the legal parameters are for state uh, regulation versus federal regulation.
0: Um, my issue putting the ethics and politics of immigration aside is if states have their own direct or indirect laws and ordinances uh, regarding immigration, just like the example I shared with you about patent law, then it would be mayhem. I mean, chaos. Uh, then immigrants would go stay shopping, right? Don't go to Oregon, don't go to California, go to New Hampshire, don't go to New York, uh, that sort of thing. Um, that's interesting. Um, yeah,
1: I mean, in a sense, that that does happen informally now. Yeah. Uh, and I guess the question or the thought that I have for you in response is, whether you think, and this is a fundamental problem that courts wrestle over in this area, is this claim about disuniformity uh, and the chaos and mayhem that would occur is that just a good policy reason for there to be significant uniform federal legislation and only the federal regulation in this area? Or does it also translate into a constitutional mandate that there only be federal regulation and one uniform policy in this area? That, I think, is most simply stated the conflict in this area of immigration federalism.
0: If you wanted our audience to remember just one point about immigration and federalism after everything we've talked about, what would it be?
1: Yeah, I think it's a broader point about immigration in general. And that is that the migration of humans has been a fact of human life and human history since the dawn of humanity. People have moved from where they've been. That all said, still, most of the world, not over 97% of the world still lives in the country and in the place in which they were born. So it's still a very small percentage that leaves and go, goes to other places. That coupled with the fact that people come to the United States even knowing that there is, for example, at our southern border, knowing that there is significant danger, significant risk of death or bodily harm, they will still come. All of this is to say, and the reason I say this is to say that even if we're talking about national immigration policy, the idea that we can enforce our way out of migration, that we can unilaterally dictate migration, I think is a fantasy. Really? Oh, wow. I think if if I'm saying that about our national immigration policy, I think it goes doubly true for individual states and localities. That if we think that individual state unilateral state policies can actually impact and influence migration in ways that are that are broad and meaningful i think that is a fantasy i think that what we should instead see at least contemporary state and local immigration policies especially enforcement minded policies really as about being able to mobilize particular uh, political constituencies to be to make claims on what immigration policy should be and to uh, to project a vision of immigration policy rather than as actual important pieces of public policy legislation. That would be the one point that I would make.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And uh, by the way, the, 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 yesterday, the Wall Street Journal had a report about how uh, most developed nations, the UK, even South Korea and Japan, certainly Canada, are, are inviting a lot of immigrants huge numbers to do the work that their native-born citizens won't do. Uh, And and the exception, the report stated, was the United States. Uh, Professor Glusay thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.